This special monthly UBU episode on hashtag Black Mental Health is sponsored by Janta Neuroscience and supported by the Painted Brain, a California peer-run organization. Okay, okay. It is another week of unapologetically Black unicorns, and this week it is hashtag Black Mental Health. I'm so, so fortunate to have a wonderful conversation with Tony McNeil, someone who's new to me, um, but anybody new is anybody great, so it's all good. <laughs> Tony, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you for having me. So my name is Tony McNeil. Um, as you said, I am a community organizer, I'm the lead community organizer with Faith in the Valley. Um, and we are spread out throughout the Central Valley. So we take up space from San Joaquin County all the way to Kern County in Bakersfield. And for people who are not familiar with California, there are 58, I think, counties in California. And every once in a while it changes, but there are 58. So you're covering five of them. And the areas that you mentioned are primarily rural. Would that be about accurate? Uh, yes, we do. We cover the broadest uh, spectrum or region demograph of rural space that there is wow. Um, wow. about the Central Valley. Yeah, this is going to be such an important conversation because geography matters as well, right? When we're trying to think about our mental health, our Black mental health, we can think of cities as being maybe more, I don't want to say more resourced. I don't even know if that's really true. Just maybe... demographically to paint like a, a broader picture. Yes, cities are more resourced because they're more seen and more visible. But when you're looking more so at the Central Valley, we are kind of the afterthought. We are the housers of big ag, big oil um, in the prison industrial complex. And so we house 20 out of the 32 prisons in the state of California. We have the biggest population and demographic of migrant farm workers and undocumented individuals that work that farmland. And we have the biggest uh, spectrum and demographic of oil industries, cattle, you know, dairy farms, all of that. So when we say rural, we mean rural. Wow. Wow. So when you talk about the work you do, can you talk a little bit more about the work you do? You've identified where, where you're working. What kind of work do you all do? So um, we do community organizing, faith-based community organizing primarily. I organize in four C's. I organize with clergy, congregations, community, and concrete. Concrete just means individuals that are directly impacted, closest to the pain, but don't really fit in any of the other three institutions. We equip individuals with the tools and the resources in order to um, advocate for themselves and use their voice to bring about systemic and structural change. You know, when I think about mental health, which I'm always thinking about, so I think about mental health, of course, in a spectrum, you can be mentally healthy, you can be mentally wealthy, you can be mentally, have a mental health condition. And then of course, that mental health condition, you know, without the timely and culturally appropriate services and supports, it can kind of, you know, not be all that well. So what, how do you think about all of these things sort of intersecting with a person's um, mental health and well-being? Ooh, that's a loaded question. Um, and the reason why that's loaded is because um, the primary issues that we organize in um, surround housing, they surround violence reduction, 
advocacy for gun violence reduction, accountability when it comes to over-policing um, on the sheriff. And so all of these different things. And so I don't want to get into the weeds of that. I want to say that when you don't have a stable housing, when you don't have a place to live and to lay your head, every single structural thing that you need, foundational thing that you need in order to feel stable, to feel safe, to, to feel covered, to feel protected is now gone. It is erased. When you don't have shelter to provide for you and your family. So it could be an individual, it could be a family. That causes mental instability, that causes anxiety and depression. When you are dealing with over-policing and going in and out of the penal system because you are an over-policed population, whether you're undocumented and going through, you know, issues with ICE and, you know, and no matter what those things are, that creates another level of anxiety, anxiousness, depression, and you don't have resources to tap into. So whether it's housing, whether it's violence and violent crime, whether it's economic instability, whether you're spending 90% of your income in order to pay your rent and you can't afford any of the other things that you need because people are migrating from the big cities that are being built up and they can't afford the rent there. So they come into the rural areas and then the rural developers up the rent and increase the values of the homes pushing out those that are uh, working, the working class in those areas. All of these things intersect when it comes to mental wellness and the need for it. And, and the worst case scenario here that we're looking at is we've got individuals, a mass population of individuals that not only need mental health services and resources, but they have they lack the access to it. They lack access to culturally competent services and who has the time to stop working my three jobs that I need to work in order to actually continue to live? You know, so, so yeah, we got issues here. I was like, preach, 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 preach. Like, yes, 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 <laughs> right? But I mean, you're really kind of hitting on how we want to help people understand that mental health does not exist in a vacuum, that mm -hmm. everything around us, the context in which we live, the live, work, play, impacts our mental health and well-being. And as Black folks, you know, well, for, first of all, for anybody, we know if you don't have housing, how are you going to be mentally well? And, and let's say you do have a mental health condition already and you have medication to oh take gosh. or you have a physical condition, you have medication to take. How, how are you going to do that if you don't have a house? How are you going to keep up with that? Right. So I think, you know, when we look at California demographics, for example, we're about six percent or so of the overall California population, six or so, six to seven percent African-American. Mm -hmm. um, yet we make up over 40% of people who are homeless in California. That's a huge disparity. So, you know, people are not doing well right. and to no fault of their own. I think right. that's an important thing to say. So um, how do you help educate the community through your organization around not just um, advocating for issues of housing and decreasing gun violence and any kind of violence, but how do you educate around these issues uh, through, through your three C's? You know, it is really difficult to educate because, first of all, we're organizing with the community that lacks the resources. So a lot of times people don't even realize that they are operating from a posturing of trauma and in need of services because it's become rote. It's become mechanical. This is what it is that we function in. 
who knows what normal is when you are in a constant state of crisis? Who knows what normal is when you don't have a grocery store because you live in a food desert and you don't know that healthy food choices and green spaces actually create health and wellness. So one of the things that we have to do is we have to create then healing spaces, incorporate healing into the equipping and the um, advocacy training that, that we're doing always. We provide food, healthy food choices when we're having meetings um, with individuals that are uh, being trained and going through organizing. And then we have to have a very, very deep relationship with individuals that provide services in order to create a connection. I'm always tying and connecting individuals to uh, services. There was um, an individual that was brutally beaten by law enforcement and their family needed resources. The whole family needed resources. They couldn't figure out how to get the resources that they need because they needed it to be culturally competent due to the racial tension that was involved in the situation that they were experiencing. So I needed to seek out someone that was a person of color, a person of faith that identified with their faith and their faith values and traditions in order for them to access that. Now, unfortunately, they paid out of pocket for it because their insurance would have taken them through too many hoops in order to be able to access it in an expeditious way because they were in crisis and needed it right away. This is like, I mean, I wish I could say my jaw is open and my, I like I'm jaw drop, but it's not jaw dropping because I hear this story so often. Yet when we work on these um, particular issues, I think what happens is we hear it in sound bites in compartments. It's compartmentalized. Mm-hmm. So for example, access is an issue. So we need more providers. But what I'm hearing is access isn't just about providers. It's about the hoops and the paperwork, um, what gets paid for, what doesn't get paid for, who's available, where they're available. Representation matters and representation matters, right? So, yeah. So it's not just this like access period, it's access plus, you know what I mean? It's all of these things and you have to kind of break down all of these things. The other thing you you said, and um, I'd like to, you know, delve a little bit deeper here. Not that I love to talk about trauma, who does, but let's talk a little bit about Mm -hmm. sort of the trauma that we have experienced. I, I have had a hard time in my life thinking about using the word trauma, because I didn't, maybe I didn't want to be a, I didn't, I didn't want to be traumatized. I I didn't want to say, no, I'm no, I'm not, I'm not a quote unquote victim of trauma. And it felt like that belongs someplace else, not, Mm -hmm. not in my experience as a black person, Mm -hmm. but there's not another word, I suppose. So can you talk a little bit about how we can recognize our experiences and our pain and how that is associated with trauma. Yeah. So I, I appreciate the, the way that you framed it. And there's so many different directions to go with this because as black people, just as individuals, we house trauma in our body. We house trauma in, in our historical DNA. We house trauma in the memories that we carry from our ancestors. And yet at any given moment, to be very frank with you, that trauma can be triggered. Just talking about it is um, emotional. (laughs) Just tapping into this. When I think about my own trauma, 
it, it's like a legacy of it. And my parents' trauma. And because they had trauma in their life, right, it traumatized me growing mm-hmm. up. And so, but their parents had trauma. The fact that my granddaddy was forced to eat a raw pigeon that he was hunting and shot and killed for his family by a white man, you know, that so, so you see there's the historical mm-hmm. trauma, the fact that he was given money and put on a train and given a new name and identity and sent away because his father was white and his mother was a sharecropper. And so he he didn't blend in anywhere. And so now we don't really know who he really is and who that family, that's trauma. Mm. And we hold that, we carry that with us everywhere that we go. And so now you compile those layers of things that take place. And you get now fast forward to where we are today. We've had no outlets to be able to unpack this. I was in a space yesterday where I was just talking about my experiences as a Black woman in the workplace um, with gender biases and gender inequality. And as I listed out the things, I literally had a breakdown, an emotional breakdown. They had to hold space for me in order for me to get my life together because I was unpacking trauma, trauma that I don't have time to go. You want me to go and see a counselor? Well, let me say this. I have, I am 53 and in my twenties and in my thirties, I did go see a counselor in crisis. As I spoke to the counselor, they, because I can articulate myself, they said, not being culturally competent, you know, you're just, you're really intelligent. It sounds like you really are just spot on and, and you, and you, it looks like you have the tools and you know exactly what it is that you need to do. And so, wow, I'm just really impressed with, and this, that, and the other, and sent me on my way. Yes, I have had that happen. What is that? That is like, I was literally at a point of no return. I will put it that way. And the counselor said to me, exactly. I mean, I hate it when people, oh, you're so articulate. As soon as that came out of their mouth, I thought, no, this is not going to go well. It's not going to go well. Not listening to me. She's, she's, they're operating in a, a space of little interaction with Black folk. Now, you know, they're in this space and it's like, oh, you're so articulate. I think everything is fine and sent me on my way. I had to go to the front desk and say, this will not do. Mm -hmm. I need to speak to someone who has this ability, this understanding. I need to see them today. Right. You will assign me to someone else. And they did. Didn't happen to be a a black person. It happened to be a, a white man who actually had done a lot of work on um, some of the Diné Navajo reservations. They mm-hmm. didn't have any people of color there. Okay. So uh, when I met with him immediately, he was like, okay, no, this is not good. You know, we need to contract for safety. Can you be safe? I said, I don't know. And that, that was mm-hmm. like, he, he got it from the get-go. Wow. But how many people, again, you know, when I look at this is so interesting. So I'm going to go on and on and on, but I can't go on and on because you're the guest, right? But what's what's really interesting is that there are many times um, when we look at the demographics of folks who are served in public mental health, we see an overrepresentation of African-Americans, again, compared to our population size. And then um, during our Mental Health Services Act, at the very beginning, when we were looking at priority populations, African-Americans were a priority population. But I kept hearing, well, we overutilize services. 
And I said, no, I don't know that that's actually true. I think we need to understand the numbers. And what the numbers showed is people show up once, leave, they show up again, trying to figure, because it's like, it wasn't resolved, right? Right. They keep coming back and back. So it looks like an overutilization, but actually it's a utilization that's not um, resolved. It's not working for us. It's not. It's a system that is not designed to work for us, which means it's a system that is dysfunctional, DYS functional and broken and does not represent the black community well at all, which also means then that there are resources being funneled into this system on behalf of a community or population that you don't even know how to service, meaning you need to go and figure it out. Or yes. find somebody that does. Mm-hmm. It, it's a problem when you say overrepresentation. I'm hearing that over and over again. Well, I want to say that's a problem. The black community is six to seven percent. Yeah. If we're six to seven percent, even throughout the nation, but overrepresented in the prison, overrepresented in mental health, overrepresented when it comes to um, comorbidity um, and other issues overrepresented when it comes to homelessness, well, then that right there, America should tell you that there is a problem, that we historically are underrepresented or underserved when it comes to mental health in Christ. Underrepresented, underserved, inappropriately served, all of those things, I think. And under-resourced. Yes, under-resourced. And when, you know, we talk about centering reform on Black experience, people just have a fit. I mean, literally, we've been working on this and it's like, well, if we center it on the Black experience so that the services meet the majority of people who are receiving them overly Mm -hmm. so, perhaps Mm -hmm. we might make a dent because if we're starting to look at, I think, again, we're going to be like preaching here for a second, but Uh I, I have this sense that, you know, until our needs are met in ways that are culturally aligned, it's, it's just like we're going around in circles here as, as far, you know, as we look at it. And, you know, I think you brought up something. I want to go back to something that you were talking about. You're talking about trauma. And I don't, I don't mean to sit here and talk about trauma all day long because no, that it can't be traumatizing. Right. But um, I was thinking about why when I am in my office, people come into my office and they, oh, those are lovely pictures. And above mm-hmm. my desk, I have Uh, all the way back to my great, great, great grandparents, all the way to myself and my brother, because I want to remember why I have the ability to sit where I'm sitting. I want to remember what they have done, even in living and in surviving that I can sit here today to do the work that I do. It's a constant reminder. And when people walk in my office, I let them know that's what's going on on these pictures. These are not just lovely pictures of my family. They have to understand how did I get to be sitting here if they don't really know that story, not on a personal level of my personal family, but in general, this is just a uh, example of what happens in general. And when we try to uh, work on unpacking that trauma, how are you helping communities, either at the individual family, community, congregational, all your C's level mm-hmm. address, you know, recognize that, yeah, it's, it's trauma. We're going to pack it little by little. How do, how do we do that? Well, we do. We have to do it uh, graciously, compassionately, skillfully, and we need to make the time to do it. it it's, it's interesting that you ask that because what comes to mind is that with as an organizer, and that's what's unique. Um, and so that's why I'm really appreciative of being in this space, because I'm coming in as an organizer. 
as a community mm-hmm. organizer, when we are funded in order to work on um, an issue, the expectation is that it moves fast. The work moves fast. The Black community needs time because in most cases, there has been so much trauma and they have endured so much crisis that when they, they have no hope in order for, uh, to even invest in their own change and transformation. And it's not until something goes boom, you know, <laughs> in mm-hmm. our community, right? That, and those are the opportunities. But when those opportunities come forth, it's like you're triaging first. So as an organizer, I have to create spaces where we triage mm-hmm. to find out how deep is the trauma, how deep is the crisis. And then after we triage, then we can determine, you know, who is actually um, in a place. And I don't want to even want to say mentally healthy enough. Who has the capacity? That's the word. Who has the capacity in this moment to actually move an issue and begin to advocate? And that may be a smaller group. That doesn't mean that those that have that capacity, it means that they actually are the ones that have even, they've either had the privilege of doing some self-work or have the opportunity, or they just, they have more of an ability to function in spite of the crisis than the trauma that they're dealing with. It's a lot of identifying where people are um, and connecting them, like I said, with resources. Every single solitary person that I come in contact with that is Black has trauma, has trauma, which means that the work that we do must be trauma-informed, always. Mm. Mm. And we preach that from the top. It's trauma-informed. We have, that's why our faith leaders and our clergy show up. Sometimes they have to come in their clergy and their garb and their vestments in order to ensure that they are there just to posture yourself as a person of faith. I don't care what tradition you're coming from. Yeah. For the community, because the community needs to know that there is love present, that there is um, peace present, that there is solidarity present, that there is belonging present, because in most cases, we don't have it. We don't get it. Not from the institutions that have been put in place in order to represent us. And I want to say this. And on top of that, we're having to do that work in the institution. So now when I'm working with uh, elected officials, I'm constantly preaching to them. These, this community is traumatized. How are you ensuring we get resources? How are you being trauma informed? How are you showing up for them? So, so the organizers, we're the bridge. We are a bridge between resources. We are a bridge between advocacy. We are a bridge between the trauma services that are needed. We're the bridge. We're the go-to. I have people call me all day long in trauma and in crisis on fire. Their lives is on fire and they need somebody to put it out. And Mm -hmm. I, I, I make demands from the top all the way down. You are here. You said that you can function. I demand that you function. How are you going to meet the need of this people? And I promise you, I have seen services and systems bend and break rules and make exceptions for individuals when you put that demand on them, which is frustrating because if you can do it for one, doggone it, you can do it for others. Wow, wow, wow. (laughs) No, that's okay. Snaps, claps, everything for me. Two thumbs up. If I had three thumbs, I'd put them up. But I only have two. So I, I am in such agreement. And I was, you know, saying that I, you know, this makes me very emotional as well, because and, and I'm going to 
hashtag a phrase. People know I do this sometimes when I hear something, mm-hmm. which is hashtag there is love present. Mm. Because yeah. you are so right. Many times we show up in places to do this work and you don't feel the love. You, you don't yeah. know if there's love. And, and if you're in the room physically, it has a palpable feeling. If you are in the room virtually, I'm looking at people's faces and either they're, they're blank or they've looked down at their phones or they've checked out. Yeah. There isn't love present. So hashtag there is love present because it makes all the difference about how you can engage in that space. And I talk a lot too about, as do many other people, about what sort of, um, I think my father even told me about this, how much emotional energy am I going to expend on something? Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, you know, I'm so glad, you know, you're doing the work um, along with others, because I think also my father reminds me, you know, you don't have to fix it by yourself, Karis. Right. Um, I can't fix the world. I can't, like, sometimes people will say, hey, Karis, can you come and do something? And I'll be like, well, you're asking me to solve world peace. No, I cannot do that by myself, <laughs> that we need a host, a village, a cadre of people. And um, I imagine too, in the in rural areas, again, I have to imagine rural areas because I've never lived in a rural area myself. How do people come together? How how is the word spread? How is support found mm-hmm. if people aren't that close together, yeah. you know, physically? And secondarily, what other places if people had to, you know, we're thinking of mapping out in rural communities, what places do people have, you know, like church and synagogue, et cetera? And that, and that, that's the key thing is um, they do, they have their churches, they have their uh, places where they come and fellowship together. I used to do drive tests in Lodi and I drive through an area um, that was a predominantly Latino community. And on Fridays, you would see families, you know, just in in the yard and the communities coming together, listening to music, you know, and just relaxing because they worked so hard that mm-hmm. that's just their sense of gathering together. And so I'm using those as examples. However, I'm saying that and in, in the same moment, recognizing that in the black community, that that is something that we um, desperately lack. Mm-hmm. Just the gathering together, you know, if it's the barbershop, you know, or the, the beauty salon. Well, now now we're talking about uh, small businesses and small black mm-hmm. businesses. And now, you know, how are they weathering the storm of the syndemic now, as they call it? Right. And mm-hmm. how they survive, because uh, that's that's a struggle. So like in Sacramento, they have what is called safe black space. Mm-hmm. We need that in other places, you know, um, so advocating for resources in order to be able to implement safe black spaces in other communities. In the city, you can have these things, but when you start getting into the Central Valley, now we got to fight and stand on the rooftop and, and the walls and, hey, what about us? <laughs> you know, mm. We need resources too. We're struggling mm-hmm. too. We've got 20 of the 32 prisons, you know? <laughs> here and, and folks are coming home and have no place to go. We we only have a, a couple of transitional houses and people can only stay there for six months and then they get, they become homeless the majority of the time. And you, so there's so many nuances. I also wanted to lift up things from an organizing perspective that, that we are working on. You know, for example, 
we um, putting the public back into public safety, alternative responses to crisis lines that, that we're implementing now, like here in the city of Stockton, so that there is an alternative when you call 911, that someone that is a trusted messenger in the community can also show up, you know, and respond. Yeah. Because when someone is in crisis, guess what? The last thing you need is a law enforcement officer to show up in his uniform. You do know that they are not trained to actually respond to a mental crisis, right? And that the only thing that they can do is transport and they have to be, there are certain cases that qualify, but just, it, it's just wasted the resources. So, so those are some of the things that we're doing. And then we had to really advocate heavily, even for the, um, just got 15 billion um, that is going to be released from this um, breaking the cycle of violence act, you know, on the federal level that will go to mental health. But look what it took. Look what it took in order for everybody to come together. Yeah, I really hear what you're saying. And I think, you know, it is such a, I don't want to say it's a conundrum. I really want to say it's a shame. And I think, um, you know, you're bringing up so many, you know, beautiful points. And I wanted to ask one thing about, safe black spaces, because many people may not know what that is, but some of this sounds like it can happen in safe black spaces. So what, what exactly is that so that um, people have a set? I mean, you know, you can guess by the name of it, but if you could explain it a little bit. Yeah. Um, and it's that once again, now that it, my heart's getting a little tender. So Stefan Clark shot and killed in the backyard of his grandmother's house, had a cell phone in his hand. The city of Sacramento was just devastated. And because it is a city and that's our capital in California, they resource for the communities of color, a place called Safe Black Space. And it is where Black psychologists came together and created a space for community members that were Black to walk into and have group counseling, culturally competent group counseling, and then small groups and connect with a one-to-one counselor or therapist if they needed it. Mm-hmm. Now, I um, live in Stockton, which is about an hour away from Sacramento. And when I started experiencing trauma, triggers, I should say, because I house trauma, based on the work that I do, I couldn't sleep. I was having um, panic attacks and anxiety. I was invited to attend a safe black space. So mm-hmm. I drove to Sacramento because they don't have that here for us mm-hmm. in our yeah. rural communities. Yeah. And when I walked into that space, they had affirmations, black sayings and quotes and affirmations posted up all over the walls. Everywhere that I looked, I saw pictures of people that looked like me. And, and I read yes. quotes that, that affirmed me and spoke life to me that made me feel like I was important. I was relevant, you know? Um, yes, and, yes. And there was nothing off the table. I didn't have to censor my words. <laughs> Come on, in here. <laughs> I didn't have to censor yeah. my words because it was a safe space for me. So I could say that I was frustrated with my white counterparts with the way that whiteness showed up in policing. I could say these things and and it was okay. I didn't have to censor. I didn't have to dress up. I didn't have to walk on eggshells, you know. I could mm-hmm, just breathe. Mm-hmm. Um, they would play the drums 
yeah. and the smell of incense and candles and different things. And there was just something about that space that made it feel like I was safe being Black. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And these counselors identified with me culturally. So mm-hmm. it wasn't like I had to explain to you why I was holding this trauma as a Black woman. You could identify with that. Yeah. It was yeah. a safe Black space. We need them everywhere. Need them everywhere. Thank you for, for sharing and um, expressing not just what it is, but what it means, what it feels like. And I think for many of us, we walk into a building and the first thing we are trying to figure out is, are we welcome here? Will we fit in? Do, are there people who look like me? Are you know going to be, how many, how many can I spot in the meeting? You know, how can, how many, that kind of thing. And so, you know, to be able to walk in a space and know that it embodies who you are as a person starts that journey of being comfortable, being authentic, being open, no code switching, none of that stuff, yeah. which again, gets us to our healing. It gets us to that beginning of our healing journey, because like you said, there's no sensor. You're just, you, you can just be you. That sounds beautiful. And I want one of those. <laughs> I think we all want them. Right? That's just, that's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. And I think particularly, you know, in under-resourced areas like rural areas. And again, I don't want to say all rural areas are under-resourced. I want to be careful about how I language that because there's such strength and power in, in rural areas as well. But being able to have a space where it is all about you as Black folk yeah. sounds just amazing. Yeah. Before we wrap up, because we do need to wrap up, mm-hmm. are there any um, last words of wisdom? I mean, you've shared so much. I just, I don't know. Are there any last words of wisdom that you want to share with uh, listeners before we wrap up? Yeah, just just to, to really love on your Black self. To really take time to wrap your arms around your Black body, your Black soul, your Black spirit. Embrace you. Know that you are loved and beloved that you are beautiful, um, that you are relevant, that you're worthy, that you are worth it. Love on yourself and don't ever cease to advocate for what it is that you, that you have a right to. And you have a right to health and safety. You have a right to wellness. Mental wellness matters. That's my hashtag. Self-care is self-love and mental wellness matters. Thank you so much, Tony. I have no other words than to thank you, thank you, thank you for giving of your time and giving of your heart. Really, thank you so much for this conversation. And uh, to our listeners, uh, thanks for listening in. And remember to listen in again next week. Um, And also next month, we'll have more hashtag Black Mental Health. Thanks so much. Thank you.